Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Three corresponding emphases are evident in this purpose statement. First, it declares Jesus is the divine Son, the revelation of God, when it states, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This merely continues the obvious emphasis of Jesus' deity in the gospel. It also explains why John declares in verse 30 that only certain miracles were recorded. Besides the explicit statements, it is commonly observed that deity is revealed through the selection of signs Jesus does and the I I am statements that he makes. In short, the book begins and ends with Christ's deity. A second emphasis, more germane to our discussion, is the presentation of belief as the proper response to this revelation about Jesus Christ. John wrote his gospel, he said, that you may believe. The evangelistic intent is obvious. It is hardly necessary to show that Christ's deity revealed by word or miracles in this gospel is typically followed by someone believing or by an appeal to believe. Furthering the argument for evangelistic intent is the third emphasis that presents eternal life as the result of belief. And John states that result this way, that believing you may have life in his name. Since Jesus himself is life, eternal life is defined in terms of quality and experience more than quantity and duration. John 10.10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Eternal life is not an end, but the beginning of a relationship with the living God through Christ. This is eternal life, that uh, they may know him, um, that they may know him, the only true God. This is enhanced through a subsequent life of faith. It has been said that the only thing better than winning a million dollars is spending it. John shows that faith in Christ secures the prize, but also enjoys the prize. Thus, the discourse to the disciples in chapters 13 through 17 easily fits into this purpose of deepening our present experience of the eternal life God shares with us who believe. John's purpose, then, was to induce and foster faith in the Son of God for eternal life. One commentator expressed John's purpose as the birth, quote, the birth, growth, and completing of faith in the disciples, unquote. The church at large has always taken John's purpose in 2031 at face value and understood this gospel's intent to lead people to faith and a full life. Through the ages, believers have probably used John more than any other piece of literature to confront people with the gospel. Now, in the second section, we will see how the condition for salvation is presented. We can now observe some peculiarities about how John states and pictures the condition for salvation. First, let's notice the clear condition. Given John's clear purpose, we would expect to see a clear condition for receiving eternal life, and we do. That condition is most frequently expressed by the verb pistuo, believe, that appears 98 times in John, compared to 34 times in the synoptics, and 16 times in the rest of the New Testament. The significance of its verbal form is that it is presented as a response to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It is not static, but dynamic in the sense of a response. Much discussion has focused on the use of the verb pastuo either absolutely or with the prepositions ace or epi 
or with the dative or hati. While some would claim these constructions indicate different kinds of faith, a long discussion can be shortened by noting the many exegetes and theologians who recognize that all these combinations refer to saving faith. You might see the footnotes for some of those. Likewise, both Morse and Tenney grant that believe without an object implies no less than believe with an object, as when prepositions are used. The prepositions ace and epi may emphasize the object of faith, but do not distinguish another kind of faith. The construction of pastua with the dative is also clearly used for salvation, as in 524. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The similarity of believe with the dative and believe in is seen in 629 through 30 and 830 through 31. I believe it is exegetically impossible to separate their meanings in those passages. To believe Christ is to believe in him and vice versa. Thus, the less certain construction is clarified by John's favorite term for saving faith, believe in. The pastuo plus hadi construction also denotes saving faith. While some may argue that this combination denotes an intellectual acquiescence that falls short of effectual faith, it seems obvious that one cannot believe in unless he also believes that. As Nigrant argues, each implies the other. Quote, each implies the other. In fact, if one really believes that, one can hardly not believe in. Unquote. We find the Hati construction in two passages that clearly discuss the condition for salvation. John 8.24 says, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The other passage is no less than John's own purpose statement, 20.31. Morris's summary statement on the various uses of Pastua recognizes the essential meaning of trustful reliance for them all. The conclusion to which we come is that while each of the various constructions employed has its own proper sense, they must not be too sharply separated from each other. Whichever way the terminology is employed, it stresses the attitude of trustful reliance on God, which is basic for the Christian. Faith, then, when present, represented by pastuo in its various forms, denotes trust in something or someone. It assumes assent to the truthfulness and trustworthiness of a person or what is claimed. In John, faith is trustful reliance on Christ and is promised to give eternal life to those who ask for it. Not only is there a clear condition in John, there is also a consistent effect. So another pattern we see is the consistent effect of believing, which is salvation. Though sometimes faith is underdeveloped, faulty, weak, or minimal, it is always sufficient for eternal life. Since faith alone is sufficient, Assurance is possible. In 524, Jesus said that whoever believes has, and that's present tense, eternal life, and has, that's present tense, passed from death into life. This is the present possession of the believer. The blind man who was given sight was able to declare, Lord, I believe. Though it took him some time to come to that point of faith. In John, salvation is conditioned not on how one believes, but who one believes, or not the kind of faith, but the object of faith. 
If this is the case in the clear preponderance of uses of believe in John, then the burden of proof lies on anyone who would accept two passages which are notoriously troublesome, and that's chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, and the passage chapter in chapter 8, verses 30 through 31. And while we must relegate an explanation of these passages to an appendix, we state here our conclusion that there is persuasive evidence in both passages that belief results in salvation. There is no convincing reasons for pleading a special use of belief that falls short of salvation. A third way that John presents the condition for salvation is through his use of comparative pictures. While there is one condition for salvation, John may represent that condition with figures of speech designed to illustrate the response of faith. For example, John equates look with believe. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, the anticipated response is to look upon Christ and his work for eternal salvation. Just as the Israelites looked upon the serpent on a pole in the desert for their physical salvation in Numbers 21. The point of the illustration is the simple look of faith. This is quite contrary to the author who writes, quote, in order to look at the snake on the pole, they had to drag themselves to where they could see it, unquote. Such eisegesis is theologically driven and violates the clear intention of the serpent illustration as used by Jesus. A second picture that Jesus uses, that John uses, is here. John uses hearing to represent believing. More than the physical sense is involved. To hear is to listen, but also to accept as true, as we understand with the slang expression, I hear you. Belonging to Jesus as his sheep is conditioned upon hearing his voice of truth, as he says in 10.16 and 27, as also is obtaining eternal life in 5.24. The unbelief of the lost is due to their not hearing God's word in 8.43 and 47. A third picture is enter. Speaking metaphorically of himself as the door to the sheepfold, Jesus also pictures the, the response of faith as entering the door in chapter 10, verse 9. To enter correlates with faith in that both express one's trust for protection from the threat of the enemy. Then there is feed. The notion of feeding on Christ in 657 includes eating his flesh and drinking his blood and is another analogy of the faith that obtains eternal life, as is clear in 635 and 647. This is similar to the drinking of water, or eternal life, offered to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. To eat and to drink is to appropriate or receive something upon which life depends. There is no work or merit associated with these activities. Rather, the benefit is from what is appropriated, which corresponds to the object of faith, which is Christ. And then come. Another metaphor for faith is expressed by the word come. In chapter 5, verse 40, to come to Christ obtains eternal life. In 635, come is equated with both eating and believing. Coming, drinking, and believing are used synonymously in 737 through 38 as the condition for salvation. To come is to trustingly approach Christ for help. It conveys no human merit or effort. Receive. Another word that may represent faith is this word receive. The promise that any who receive Christ will become children of God is closely linked to believe 
in chapter 1, verse 12. Believe appears to be an apposition to receive here in order to explain it. In 1.12, to receive is to welcome or accept as true the person, the person or words of Jesus Christ. This is in contrast to those who did not know and did not receive Jesus as the Christ in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. What do we conclude from the pictures of faith? These pictures of faith all denote receptivity, agreement, or trust. All are essentially simple activities and essentially passive. None communicates the idea of merit, work, effort, or achievement. Neither do they communicate an exchange of one's life or the ongoing submission of one's life to Jesus as master in order to obtain eternal life. When we observe the clear statements in John about the condition for salvation, the effect of this condition, and the picture, pictures of this condition, we conclude that John represents faith alone in Christ alone as the only condition for salvation. Our third major section discusses how the condition for salvation is not presented. Just as we pay attention to the peculiarities present in John's gospel, we also note what is peculiarly absent. First, there is the absence of qualifiers. It is extremely significant that we do not see qualifiers with the word believe. John does not condition salvation on, one we on whether one really believes or truly believes. Neither does he speak of genuine faith, real faith, or effectual faith. There is only one kind of faith. One either believes in something or he does not. Therefore, those who speak of spurious faith or false faith are psychologizing faith as the scripture neither does nor provides a basis for doing. In contrast, John does use qualifiers to distinguish the real from the fraudulent in other concepts. He speaks of the true light, true bread, true vine, true worshipers, and true God. When he shows that even the unsaved can be referred to as disciples in chapter 6, he later calls the saved who adhere to his word disciples indeed, or true disciples, in chapter 8. After the absence of qualifiers, we also note the absence of other conditions. Also in John, we do not see other conditions attached to faith or any condition replacing faith. For example, the word repent never appears in John. In spite of the strained efforts of some to impose repentance on their salvation accounts in John, we find the opposite. In the incident of the woman at the well, Jesus' disclosure of the Samaritan woman's multiple mates would have been a perfect time to call her to repentance from this sin. Instead, we find eternal life offered on the condition of asking and drinking, both expressions of believing. Of course, there's no problem to those of you repentant. This is no problem to those of you repentance as a change of heart needed for salvation. Faith is the more specific way of expressing this change of heart because it focuses on Christ and his salvation from sin. Paul seemed to overlap the two concepts in the phrase repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 20. Neither do we find the condition for salvation stated as surrender or commitment of all of one's life to Jesus as master. Salvation is totally and absolutely free and is not conditioned on human merit. 
It is what one receives, not earns, merits, or barters for. It will be given freely to whoever asks. Similarly, we do not find salvation conditioned on continual obedience. If anything, we could argue that John's gospel purposely introduces us to those who believed in Jesus as Savior, but were less than fully committed as disciples, or were partially obeying him. Martha believed and was obviously saved, according to 11.27, and we might also assume uh, Mary and Lazarus were in that category. But there is no indication that she followed Christ in the fullest sense of leaving home and family. Less than full confession and commitment are also found in the secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. Some would again argue that Nicodemus was in this category. In addition, the Jewish rulers mentioned in 1242 believed in Christ, but did not profess him, confess him publicly for fear of being ostracized by the Jewish leadership. The significance of John's lack of embellishment of faith and the absence of any other conditions emphasizes this one condition as the only insufficient means of obtaining eternal life. In terms of the data, what is present and what is absent, there is an overwhelming case presented in John for faith alone in Christ alone as the sole condition for salvation. This is in perfect agreement with his own perfect the purpose statement of chapter 20, verse 31. John has spoken definitively on what it takes to be saved. His presentation carries the weight of his purpose for writing, which is that you may believe. Let the debate over the gospel begin with John's gospel. Unless we would accuse him of preaching half a gospel or easy believism, or charge him with compromising the gospel, acquiescing to the modern culture, or cheapening the gospel. If we are to defend the faith, then we must begin by defending faith alone in Christ alone, a simple, unconditional, non-meritorious response of accepting and trusting in God's promise. Finally, let me note some practical implications. If John has written the book on how to be saved, then we should submit our thinking to it and allow our ministries to be shaped by it. Yet how often do we hear salvation explained in terminology not found in the Bible or confused with other demands that Jesus makes of those already saved? There are some important implications which flow from our study of John's presentation of salvation. First, we must give people something to believe. Since it is the object of faith that saves, there must be meaningful content about that object, which is Jesus Christ. We should present Jesus as the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. Contentless emotional appeals are not enough. It will do no good to call people to believe in something empty or erroneous. Second, we must invite people to believe in Christ as their Savior. Christ's revelation demands a response. But let us invite them to believe, not to ask him into your heart, give your life to Christ, surrender to him as Lord, or any other unbiblical notions. This kind of unclear, erroneous, and confusing language will obscure the simple message of sola fide. We should be prepared to explain what it means to believe with appropriate illustrations or comparisons. Third, 
We can assure people of their salvation on the basis of their having believed in God's word. Faith in God's promise of eternal life is not the only assurance of salvation, but it is sufficient assurance to which any other assurance is secondary. Let us not lead them to conditions that are certainly not found in John's presentation. Fourth, we must emphasize God's free grace in our gospel. It is for those who ask, receive, or believe. We must keep salvation simple, as John did, and I differentiate that from easy. We should normally be positive in our approach, not condemning, as John depicts Jesus. If we choose to preach repentance, we must explain what it means and how it relates to faith so that it does not become another condition for salvation. But let us also admit that it was important enough to John that repentance not be included in the gospel of belief. To John, the sin that condemns is unbelief, and the only cure for this in his gospel is belief. We end with the words of chapter 3 and verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And I would draw your attention to the appendix, which is not meant to be an exhaustive treatment of these two problem passages, but kind of a summary of the arguments uh, on both sides. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, and I'll just hit the highlights, um, in 23 you have the language that they believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. In verse 24, however, we find that Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. The commentary uh, consensus is that uh, these were not true believers because basically three arguments, that these only believed in Christ's name and not in his person. They only believed in the signs and not in Christ as Messiah. And Jesus rejected their faith in verse 24. In answer to that, I think we have to be honest and admit that there is no explicit denial of the reality of their faith in the passage itself. Believed in his name in verse 23 would normally be taken to refer to salvation just as it does in chapter 1 and verse 12 and um, also in his purpose statement, 2031. And the construction to stuoase used here is commonly agreed. It is, is his technical term for saving faith and it would be inconsistent then and the burden of proof would be on someone who says it is not. John could have used other language. Also, some say that the belief was in sign. Uh, um, some those signs prompted this faith. Faith had its object as its object, his name, not his signs. Uh, faith prompted by signs is seen elsewhere, however, in the book of John and a number of places. And Jesus even encouraged faith in signs and expected signs to induce faith again, appealing to the purpose statement. Thirdly, uh, the use of pistuo in verse 24, which is usually translated commit, is evidently a word play on the word believe, uh, pistuo in verse 23. And I take it as an indication of Jesus' lack of confidence in disclosing himself further to those who have yet to confess him publicly and openly. And I, I think it shows Jesus' discernment of their level of 
commitment, we might say. Whereas in chapters 13 through 17, we find an intimate disclosure to those who were intimately uh, committed to him and confessing him. Now in John, in John chapter 8, verses 30 through 31, the objection there is that verse is recognized that verse 30 says many believed in him using the uh, pastel ice construction. Uh, verse 31 refers to them as those Jews who believed him without a preposition. Um, but then in verse 33, uh, verse 31, uh, first of all, a condition is given uh, for discipleship, which some equate with salvation. And then there is a problem with Jesus continuing, the continuing hostility in that passage and Jesus calling them later, verse 44, children of the devil, or at least using that term. And we've already shown how pastua without the preposition um, does not prove that faith is inadequate for salvation. The immediate context, verse 24, verifies that salvation can be expressed by pastua without the preposition. There Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the immediate context has a direct bearing. I think also the passage emphasizes that Jesus is now turning to a subgroup within the Jews by his the emphatic position of the, the pronoun humase, which distinguishes true believers from the rest of the Jews. Jesus' invitation is not for them to enter into his word, but to continue in it. The error of subjunctive shows that they have a choice at this point. And that intimate discipleship is conditioned, as in the rest of John, on their continual obedience. And then finally, the hostile objections in verse 33 that continue, I think, just reflect that motif in John of hostility, especially in chapter 8, which is continuing. And so when we see an abrupt change of tone from verses 30 to 31, um, the John, with John's uh, editorial comments, and, Jesus's, and then Jesus' comments are resumed, I don't think that... Uh, John found it necessary to designate who Jesus was talking to since it was an overriding motif in the passage. And finally, this interpretation prevents Christ, who says in verse 45, you do not believe me, from contradicting John, who says in verses 30 and 31 that they believed in him and that they believed him. And I think that that is a better option than calling these Unbelieving believers, as some commentators do. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.